that's the biggest thing with real estate investing is I think people are enamored by the lifestyle it can create for you, but they quickly get discouraged because once you get in the trenches and you're battling with, you know, a rehab and you've got issues with contractors, there's this defeated feeling potentially. But yep. every single lesson yeah. that you learn from those experiences progresses you towards eventually reaching your goal. And I would just say that the, the key message would be just to never give up. Welcome to the Threefold Real Estate Investing Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll not only learn how you can achieve massive success in multifamily real estate investing, but also how you can simultaneously pursue great relationships with your family and a better walk with God. You can achieve financial freedom through real estate investing without sacrificing the relationships that mean the most to you. Now, here's your host, Lee Yoder. Welcome back, Threefold listeners. I hope you're having a great week. Got another great guest today. Paul Shannon is joining us from Indianapolis, Indiana, just west of us here in Cincinnati. And uh, Paul and I have gotten to know each other pretty well over the past couple of years. Um, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed uh, Paul's mind around multifamily and how he thinks about it. Uh, you should check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, he puts out the, you know just some great content week to week. And, and um, you'll learn a lot from just by reading his posts. So he spent his career as a sales leader and consultant for a large ophthalmology company, implementing surgical devices uh, and operating rooms. So, so medical sales across the Midwest. He left his corporate career in 2019, and he's acquired roughly 150 single family and multifamily units by recycling his equity and or joint venturing. So he, he's done a lot you know, today. Uh, he's a limited partner in uh, 1,400 multifamily units, uh, some industrial offerings, and ATMs. Just a really sophisticated investor, uh, really getting it going. Uh, so, Paul, can't wait to get more into this, but uh, thanks for joining us today. Lee, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Take us back, uh, you know, a little bit like, where, where were you at? What did your life look like when you were in medical sales um, and, and, and doing that? And then what sparked the interest in the real estate? What, what just got you started? So uh, I spent the last decade or so of my career in medical sales. Uh, I was selling capital equipment and implants in the operating room to ophthalmologists. Uh, cataract surgery was my specialty. And, you know, it was a great career. I met some great people. Um, a lot of the colleagues I work with are still friends of mine. Uh, and I miss aspects of it. But what I don't miss is working 80 hours a week and at one point traveling, you know, 80 nights uh, out, of, wow. out of the year. So yeah. as my family started to grow, uh, my values started to misalign with the lifestyle that I was living mainly around my professional career. So um, I started to look at avenues to, to kind of, you know, go out on my own. I was always interested in entrepreneurship. I was interested in real estate and really what pushed me was necessity. And it was twofold. One was kind of relating to the way I was spending my time, my values. As I mentioned before, I wanted to be around for my kids' softball games. I wanted to be there to tuck them in at night and read them stories um, I wanted to, you know, be more of a present father. So uh, that was very, very important to me and a big driver in my decision. The other aspect of it was uh, more of a financial decision. I looked at um, early retirement as something that was uh, achievable and something that I was really interested in to okay. have that kind of time yeah. freedom. And uh, traditionally, you know, you look at uh, financial advice and it's based around the 60-40 kind of stock bond portfolio. Oh, yeah. So 60% of your portfolio is in stocks, 40% is in bonds. And with that, um, there was a study that came out in the 90s called the Trinity study that suggested that if you look back over the last, I think it was like 80 years in that study, 
Um, if you were to retire on a 60-40 portfolio and withdraw 4% of the money in that portfolio, essentially you could live uh, off of that money indefinitely. Um, so that worked pretty well when bond yields were paying what they were back in the 90s when the study was done and prior to that. Um, but as you probably know today, bond yields are, are much, much lower. Um, yep. You know, During the COVID crisis and immediately after, the 10-year treasury dropped to 0.6%. Uh, so when you look at where bond yields were, it was difficult to see how the income that they were paying was going to balance out the volatility of stock investing. And the 4% rule has kind of gotten a little bit outdated, um, yeah. where that money might not last for 30 years of retirement or longer if you plan to retire early. So right. uh, I was really looking for something that could sort of supplement my W-2 income. And what I found was cash flow in real estate. And that's what really made me make the leap into it was the the family, uh, you know, kind of dynamic that I had going or lack yep. thereof and wanting to kind of get more uh, time freedom to be present for my family, but also looking at, you know, retirement and thinking, you know, I want a little bit more stability. I don't want to live off the principal balance of my nest egg and hope it lasts. I want to live yeah. off cash flow that's pretty consistent and reliable year to year. And maybe we'll still diversify into other asset classes, but making sure that, you know, I've got some checks coming in the mail that can pay for my lifestyle. So that was very important to me. You look at real estate and it, it actually offers a lot of the same benefits as as bonds do. Um, it's sort of a hybrid bond, if you will. It's uh, usually pretty good in times of economic uncertainty as a hedge. Um, it's uh, a great way to preserve capital. Uh, it pays income and it still offers you the opportunity to appreciate. Those are all characteristics of bonds. So I took kind of that portion of my portfolio and allocated it to real estate and, and turn into a career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe I definitely want to get back to, to the family aspect, Paul. We'll, we'll kind of uh, talk about that maybe toward, toward the end of the podcast. Um, you know, as you're thinking about this, as, as the wheels are turning. Anything help you get there? Like you obviously like had a good understanding or came to a good understanding of real estate and what it offered. Were you reading some books? Were you listening to podcasts at the time, learning from others? How did you kind of gather this, this, um, this knowledge around what real estate could do for you as an investor? <laughs> All the above. I mean, I, I definitely okay. read a lot of different books. Um, I had a, a mentor locally that kind of took me around nice. to different projects that he was working on and I could okay. pick his brain or pick up the phone and, and grab a cup of coffee with him. So um, having that kind of accountability and that kind of support network was helpful. Yep. Uh, podcasts, you know, definitely listened to a ton of podcasts between probably 2014 and 17. I was absorbing just tons of content and information that was out there as podcasts were becoming more popular. Um Really, though, the experience is what got me into it. I waited really too long to get involved. I had sort of analysis paralysis. And once yeah. I actually took the step and got involved, uh, you know, going from book smarts to street smarts, that's what really helped me accelerate and try to figure out like, okay, what is it that I like doing? What is it that I'm good at doing? What am I not so good at doing? And who can I find to help me with those things that I'm not so good at? Um, it started with a duplex back in 2016 okay. uh, that came with tenants in it. And uh, it was an older home that came with older home problems. I had to work with contractors yeah. and build relationships with them. I was managing it myself. So learning the leasing process. And, did you buy it yourself, uh, Paul? Just you? I did. Yeah. Okay. I bought it okay. myself. I used a home equity line of credit to okay. initially nice. buy it and nice. uh, refinanced it. Um, so that was my first foray into real estate. And then shortly after that, I bought a, a single family home at auction that was in disarray and uh, was going to use the burst strategy on it. And uh 
pretty much did everything that you could do wrong, but still came out smelling like roses in a rising economy. So yeah, uh, yeah. it was a it was a great lesson, um, but was able to cash out all my initial investment and some. Um, and when I saw that, I saw the scalability of the model and I really got attracted to Burr investing. So okay. buying undervalued properties or properties that have some element of distress in them, um, you know, renovating them, uh, filling it with a tenant and renting them, refinancing them, and then just doing it again and again and again. So uh, that's really how I got started was in single family, uh, got into smaller multifamily and, and really got my hands dirty with a lot of heavy lifts, uh, bigger rehabs. Yeah. And then transition to working full time this whole time, Paul, 2016, 2017, three years between right? okay. the first acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. Until okay. I left and, to go full time. Yeah. Just real quick, Paul, just people that, that uh, maybe aren't, aren't catching everything you're saying. Um, home equity on credit. Most people know that, but, but you own a house. It's, it, you know, maybe you bought it for 300. Now it's worth 400, but you only owe 200 on it. So the bank is fine with, you know, leveraging you back up to 75%. So since it's worth four and you only owe two, They'll let you use a hundred of, of that 200,000 in equity, right? So you can take that hundred and go buy your duplex. Um, and so that's, that's how you can use a homemaker line of credit. But then you also mentioned the Burr strategy. So you buy a house, let's say you buy it for a hundred. So you need to put $25,000 down, maybe put another 25 into it. So you're into it for 50, you bought it for hundred, but now it's worth 200. Again, the bank would be glad to, you know, instead of just loaning you 75, now they loan you, you know, 125 or whatever. So you can get all of your money back and you have $125,000 loan on it, but it's worth 200, but you've got no money into it and you're renting it and cash flowing. And, and so that allows you, 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 I know Paul, you're big on like recycling that equity and that's kind of what that is, right? So you, you had to put 50,000 out to buy that house and renovate it, but now the bank gives you a bigger loan on it and now you get all that money back. So you have zero money into that house, but you've got a renter in there and you're making income and that renter is paying off the house for you while you're making income off of it. And now you've got all your money back. So you can go do it again. That's it in a nutshell, Lee. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's about velocity of money. Uh, the home equity line of credit is a, a brilliant tool to help, uh, because it yeah. gives you immediate cash that you need. Um, and a lot of times deals like that are, are, uh, really transacted with cash as opposed to financing right. on the front end. Yep. So you have to have the ability to be liquid and, and that's one way of doing it without having just a lump sum of cash in a bank account. Uh, right. But it's short-term financing and they're also variable rates. So uh, it pays to be quick in execution. And then once you get a renter in there and you can start showing some income within about three to six months, depending on the bank, that's the seasoning period. Then you're able to go back and refinance it in long-term debt and you get a check at closing. When you get that check at yep. closing, you pay down the home equity line of credit and yep. you're able to do it Love again it. and again. So it's sort of like, you know, some people use private money. We got into private money later on when we were doing more home flipping. Um, Which is just borrowing from somebody with, with the cash. That's right. Right. Um, yep. so that's another way of, of kind of not having to have like a, a big lump sum of cash in a bank account. Life insurance is another strategy to do that. Infinite yeah. banking is sometimes referred to where you can borrow yep. against the, the cash value of your policy. So there's some creative ways where you can kind of use capital uh, to acquire and then sort of pay it back down. Um, you know, to kind of create that velocity of money or recycle that capital. Nice. So Paul, this is how you got into it and, and got going. Um, you know, where, where were you at in, in 2019? Maybe take us through a little bit of the progression. Cause I know you, you eventually really felt like multifamily is a better route to go. Some of the kind of the, a little bit bigger multifamily or buying more units at one time. Um, tell us about that progression. Then maybe what allowed you to uh, make the full transition in 2019 after three years of, of doing real estate as a side hustle. Sure. Um, so in 2019, I, 
I think I had eight to 10 rentals at that point. So it wasn't a large enough portfolio to live off of by any means, but I had tasted success and I felt like the model was repeatable. And I had started to figure out, you know, where I could be in the business. And it turned out that I was wrong about my forecasting of where I would be. I I thought initially I was going to be a property manager and that I was going to, you know, essentially have multiple projects going on. I would start to develop more relationships with contractors that have multiple crews. And eventually I'd start taking on other investors, uh, other homes to manage. Um, and that would be another source of, of in, an income stream sure. for me. Yeah. Well, as I got more and more involved in it and the headaches started to compound, I realized I wasn't a very good property manager. Um, <laughs> the systems that you need to have in place to be uh, efficient in that business are, are pretty, uh, you know, pretty intensive uh, and take yeah. quite a while to build up. You uh, have to have yeah. 300, 400 units under management to really gain that efficiency. Okay. And yeah. I just couldn't see getting there. And I thought, yeah. you know, I'm kind of going one by one here through each acquisition and it's taking me time to kind of refi. Maybe I had two projects going on, but that was about my cap. And I really was trying to figure out how can I scale this business uh, and not get stuck in the muck. I know I don't want to do property management anymore, but I do have kind of a baseline understanding of what the property manager does, what their yeah. challenges are. Um, yeah. you know, That's the benefit of, of doing it yourself for a while. That's right. right. So I, yeah. I felt confident that I could turn it over to somebody and quickly figure out if I could trust them or like the way that their process was. Yeah. So that's what I decided to do. At the same time, um, the market was kind of changing where the Burr method was working really well in Indianapolis for a while. You know, we were, we were finding it challenging to get all of our equity back out or all the money that we had initially put into buying a property back out. So um, I decided to look into some of the ancillary markets around Indianapolis and came across Evansville. And that's where I met a property manager um, who is now my partner in a few deals. Uh, still manages uh, my multifamily unit that I have down in Evansville, Indiana. It's a 40 unit. Nice. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was kind of the progression was, you know, first we needed to figure out a different market to work in that maybe the numbers make sense a little bit more. And then let's yep. pivot our strategy a little bit more let's offload some of the stuff that I'm having a difficult time with property management being the big one. Um, and when I met that partner, uh, things really became a lot more scalable where I could spend more time focused on acquisitions or networking right. and building relationships yep. with other investors. Um, I love to do asset management and project management. So, uh, you know, I was kind of working hand in hand with my property manager and his construction crews, uh, when we got to that 40 unit property, but, um, you know, transitioning to multifamily, uh, is really, you know, a no brainer in, in, in essence. It, it You think about single family and the way that the properties are valued, they're based off market comps. So it doesn't matter how much you, you know, gentrify a property or make it nicer. At a certain point, you're over improving it, right? Yeah. Um, at a certain point, yep. there's a cap or a ceiling on how much you can rent that property for. And if you rent it for $800 versus a thousand, it's really not going to make a difference in what that property is valued at. So it made sense to me from, from twofold. One is, to move to multifamily. One was um, just the efficiency of it. You know, the 40 unit apartment I own has two buildings. There's two roofs to worry about instead of 40 houses where I've got 40 homes all over the city that, you know, I have to drive around and try to keep up with some sort of a maintenance schedule and constantly visit the properties to see what's going on. Uh, It's like death by a thousand paper cuts, in my opinion. So um, there's that piece of it. But then there's also the piece where multifamily properties are valued off the income they generate. It's more of a business. Right. So, uh, and it's a business that made sense to me where if I go in and I can find properties that are under market rent, that maybe have some deferred maintenance, I can go in there and I can infuse some capital, bring them up to current standards or actually slightly above what the competition is offering, but at a slowly lower price, 
I can really drive demand in there and fill up those units pretty quickly, increase the income the property produces. And then, you know, based off the the cap rate, the multiplier that's used to value the property, um, ideally get that into a situation where that property is a burst style multifamily property, where then I can go back and get the equity back out of that deal and scale just much faster. So um, I did that. Uh, down in Evansville, I've, I've got a couple other multifamily properties and looking to continue to scale. So it's been fun. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Paul. Well, I'd love to hit on the the what you were saying because uh, I, I think a lot of people are, are finding this today. Where you said, you know, in Indianapolis, uh, around maybe you know nineteen twenty something like that. Um, maybe it's a little bit later, but you, you were like, man, I, I can't do the burr strategy anymore. And you know, just a little more color on that, Paul. Like, what kind of what do you mean by that? Help us understand because, again, I, I feel like that a lot of people are finding that today. Well, take us through like your mindset there and, and why why couldn't you do the Burr method anymore? Well, let's just say you have like a finite amount of capital, right? Let's say it's $100,000 for, for the sake of this conversation. Um, and let's say that um, house costs $50,000. you are going to put twenty five dollars into it and you're going to hope it's worth $100,000 when, you, when you're done, right? Yep. Um, you refinance it. The bank looks at it, it's worth a hundred. They want 25% in as a down payment. You're going to get your 75,000 back and you're going to continue to go. So I still yep. have a hundred thousand, right? Yep. Well, what if at the end of that, it's only worth 85,000 instead of a hundred, right? Now yep. it's, now I'm getting back a portion of my capital. I'm not getting the full amount back because I've got, yep. to, I've got to leave 25% in the deal based on an 85% valuation. So slowly but surely, the hundred thousand that I have to work with is going to get diminished, diminished, and yep. end up. I've got all my capital tied up in real estate, and I have nowhere to go. So yeah. um, that's what I saw. That was the writing on the wall. And, um, I knew and were the falling to- prices like that, or like falling um, valuations, Paul? Or were you kind of creeping up on the front end, where you're seventeen, eighteen, or whatever? You're looking at a house, and you're like, okay, you know, if I if I buy, I can buy this for fifty, and and put a little bit into it, and it's going to be worth a hundred, and you just keep doing that. But then it's like more demands coming in, real estate's getting hot. There's more interest. And so now that house that you're like, I'm pretty sure it can be worth a hundred. Well, maybe now you're like, yeah, now it might be worth 125, but now you're having to pay 75 to get into it or 80 or 90. Was it, was that kind of That's going right. on too? Okay. Yeah. That was yeah. more of the case actually. It was that it was, you know, pricing was going up. There's more demand in the marketplace. Rents weren't going up as much. Um, so it was harder and harder to make the cash flow work. Yep. Um, and it was harder to, to buy right, essentially. So yep, exactly, I think that's yeah. what's great about real estate is there's so many ways to um, to make money in the business. And you know, some people will argue that you really want to be a specialist and you want to be so focused on one specific strategy or one specific asset class. And with that, you're going to have more ability to scale vertically quicker. And it's hard to argue with that because um, there's been a lot of people that have been successful doing that. But at the same time, like I feel as though uh, the more you can learn, the more you can soak up, the more you can network and look at different asset classes or different strategies, the more it gives you the opportunity to pivot when the market changes. Yeah. And, you know, since I've been doing this full time since 2019, I think the market's changed about three times from under me. So um, what's working today, it might not work tomorrow. Uh, and what used to work that doesn't work anymore might start working in a few years. So it really helps to to kind of have multiple avenues to make money in the business, especially if you want to be uh, a full-time real estate investor. For me, that's right. meant, you yeah. know, single family burrs. It's meant flipping houses. It's meant getting into multifamily. This is something I have a lot of respect for you and, and the way you think about this. You mentioned, you know, it was almost like kind of doing a burr on a, on a multifamily and, and how you, you, you started talking about going in and you can raise rent and maybe make the property a little bit better. And so what you're talking about there is the value add strategy. And it's such a commonly used term and 
now it feels like everybody just says that, like, no matter what I, I just, I do value add, I do value add. And you've kind of been able to say that for a long time because, you know, at the end of the day, what, what, what really um, is the litmus test on whether you've added value is whether the rents have gone up and rents have gone up for everybody, no matter what, for the last two years. Right. So you could say your value add and, and kind of the numbers at the end of the day show that you, Hey, he must've done value add because rents went up. What is true value add Paul? Let's talk about that because today it's much more difficult. Um, and I think it's going to get more difficult. We're, we're still kind of seeing rents go up in a lot of places, but I, I think they're starting to plateau and, and may start coming down. So uh, doing the true value add strategy is going to be more difficult. So let's get to get into that a little bit. Um, if you're getting into, let's, let's say we're coming into a time like that, Paul, where the market rent isn't going to go up. So how do you find a property and feel confident that you can do uh, utilize the value add strategy on a property? If you're not getting just that normal um, natural rent appreciation, where it's going to go up regardless of what you do. Sure. Well, you're right. I mean, it has gotten more difficult. It may get more difficult from here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in the past probably decade, everybody's benefited from kind of a raging bull market, really, with sure. in every asset yeah. class um, yeah. with the money printing that the Fed has had going on and uh, low interest rates. It's it's been you know kind of a boom. But now yeah. we're ending a period with a little bit more uncertainty. So where do we go from here? I'm not sure, but. Um, there's two, there's two ways to add value to a property. There's either you raise rents or you reduce expenses. So sure, yeah. one of the ways we're looking at things is, um, you know, through a different lens of operational inefficiencies and how maybe we can improve, uh, you know, the, the expense ratio and what's, what's going on under the covers there. Is there, is there a lot of unnecessary expenses or can we come in and can we, you know, add uh, to the income line a little bit of other income, whether it's through yes. some sort of a Wi-Fi program or laundry yep. or, so there's, there's a number of ways to look at it, but you're right. There's, there's still a lot of groups out there that are advertising value add and, and every project seems to be a value add. Um, you can make every project a value add through your underwriting based on how aggressive you are with your assumptions. Right. Um, yep. And whether it's, you know, rent growth or expense growth, whether it's uh, how you project your, you know, interest rate at your refinance or what is your terminal cap rate when you sell. Um, you know, whether it's uh, shortening your hold period, you can juice up your IRR, um, or it's just adding another, you know, a little bit more to the leverage, you know, all those things impact yep. how IRR yep. is spat out. Um, okay. and a so little bit if, on IRR, give us a little bit on IRR, Paul. What do you mean by that? What internal that? rate of return. So just, it's basically, it's not your annualized return over a hold period. It's your internal rate of return, which takes into account the time value of money. So a yep. dollar today basically is better than a dollar tomorrow. Yep. A dollar tomorrow is applied, uh, what's applied to it is a discount rate. So you're taking a little bit off of it uh, based on the fact that you're not getting it tomorrow. And there's an opportunity cost for that. If you get it so, today. Paul, real quick. So, um, and, and I even struggle with this. The IRR is pretty confusing. Annualized return, annualized rate of return is a little bit easier. So if I if I double your money, Paul, in, in, in five years, if you give me a hundred grand, and over five years, I turn that into two grand, then I've made you 100% on your money. So divided by five, I've made you an annualized rate of return of, of 20%. Mm -hmm. But if I make you, you know, another 20, if I held it for six years and I made you 120%, then your annualized rate of return doesn't change, you know, because I, I still made you, you know, 20,000 per year or 20% per year. But IRR changes because I had to hold your money for five versus six, right? So that's a little bit what you're talking about. And then what you, what, you know, more importantly, I think what you're saying, Paul, is 
when somebody's underwriting a property, and this is just for you know you passive investors out there that are looking at deals, and that's what Paul's really good at. If, if you follow him on LinkedIn, and and we'll get to you know some other places he puts out some good content, but that's what Paul kind of helps educate on is like the the sponsors, the guys and girls that are that are doing the deal that are trying to get you to invest with them, uh, which is what I do. Paul does as well. They can you know turn the knob on a couple of these things, and again, if they say, well, rent's not you know rent's eight hundred today, it's going to be nine hundred next year and a thousand. Well, let's make it nine ten next year. Let's make it a thousand twenty the year after. Just those little things, all of a sudden, it looks like your return is going to be great. And it's it's just a projection. It's just the sponsor, you know what they truly believe. But I mean, it, it's it's projecting the future. That's what underwriting is. So that I like, I always like how much you're um, talking about that, Paul, and uncovering that because it's so important for investors to understand that that that's what's going on behind the scenes, and it's nothing necessarily dirty at all. I mean. That's again, that's what we have to do. We have to project in the future. Everybody does. We, you know, we're buying the property. It doesn't really matter to anybody that's investing what the property's done the past five years. It matters what it's going to do the next five years because that's when we're invested. And that's pre- that's predicting the future. Uh, but right. what Paul is getting at is the people that are doing the predicting of the future. I mean, you just got to look at their assumptions because uh, if they've got a really rosy picture, you might want to question that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you hit it on, hit the nail on the head as far as the, uh, you know, what a limited partner should be looking at. I think that's, that's very accurate. And what you're looking at from an active real estate investor's perspective, you know, you really want to look at those assumptions built off of rent growth, expense growth, terminal cap rate, loan to value, all those things with a conservative mindset. Like what's the margin of safety in this deal? If you're too aggressive and you miss your aggressive assumptions and you overpaid to get there, you're going to regret it. Um, and then optionality too. Like what options do you have if your initial plan doesn't go to fruition? Can you yeah. hold it a little bit longer? Are there other ways to benefit from this property? I look at all that stuff, but all those all those elements are, are easily tweaked in a spreadsheet as you alluded to. Yep. And I think IRR is probably the most sensitive of all. And it's the one that's manipulated probably the most, which is why I put kind of little weight on it. I don't really trust the, the metric. I don't really get that excited about it. Uh, maybe until you actually close on the sale and then you know what your IRR is. You're like, oh, this is pretty good. Um, But as far as a pro forma IRR, when you're looking at it on the front end, it doesn't carry much weight for me. Um, Cash on cash is more important. And then when evaluating a value add deal, I think back to your initial question, one of the key metrics that um, I study uh, on pretty much every deal is yield on cost. And it's more prevalent in the development space, ground up development. Uh, But it can easily be applied to value add investing. And basically what it is, is it's your pro forma, uh, pro forma net operating income. So when your property is stabilized and you've executed your plan, what's your NOI going to be? Which is kind of your profit, profit before paying debt, right? That's correct. Just think of it as profit. So like, what's your profit going to be once it's stabilized? So three years from now, what what are you, uh, what kind of profit are you generating? That's your NOI. If you're a business owner, it's like EBITDA before, you know, taxes, depreciation, et cetera. Um, So that's your pro forma NOI. And then you divide that by your total project cost. So your total project cost is basically your purchase price to include the debt. It's your CapEx that you're going to, you know, use to improve the property. It's your closing costs. It's all your reserves. It's everything you need to to get the project uh, closed at acquisition. So uh, when you look at that number, um, that's really your yield on your loan constant for one. So um, in relation to your loan constant, basically. So if you're paying, you know, 5% on a, on a 30 year AM and your yield on cost is seven, 
uh, you know that you have a positive leverage situation. And a lot of these deals you're seeing out there in the market today that are trading at three and a half caps, four caps maybe, and their you know, interest rates five and a half percent, that's a negative leverage situation. So the risk is yeah. much greater on a deal like that. Uh, but what it also tells you is, is about margin of safety. It's about knowing that you're actually adding value to this property. It's about being right. able to, if you wanted to, or if you had the opportunity to refinance, you'd be able to get some of that money back out. So let's say your yield on cost is is five and the market cap today, or excuse me, your yield on cost is seven and the market cap today is five. Well, there's a 200 basis point basically cushion that you have uh, that you know, um, even if cap rates were to rise up to seven, you would still break even on what you have in the project. So that's a pretty unlikely scenario, 200 basis point increase. Um, but that's a very high margin of safety in that example. So you know, kind of understanding yield on cost, uh, and you could take it a step further with uh, development spread, which is that 200 basis points I just described uh, in that example. Um, and then development lift is an actual percentage. So um, you can calculate how much value you're adding on a percentage basis from what you paid for it. Yeah, um, Those are powerful tools, powerful equations to kind of implement into underwriting that enable you to see, okay, this is a property that has real value to be added to it. Um, you know, and yield on costs, does rely on some of the assumptions that you put into that calculation as well. Right. So it can be manipulated. So you do want to understand what's going into that equation output. Um, but that's key. I mean, that is key is understanding some of the secondary layers of these financial equations, these secondary performance indicators, uh, and not just the flashy metrics that are sometimes advertised by brokers. If you're an active real estate investor, or if you're a passive investor and you're looking at offering uh, offerings from other sponsors, understanding, you know, where they're coming up with those metrics and not just, you know, immediately going to IRR or cash on cash and equity multiple. Cause there's a lot more yeah. of the deal than those three metrics. Yeah. Yeah. I really like yield on calls, Paul. And, and, and you're the one that, you know, helped me understand this uh, better for sure. It kind of brought the, the term to mind for me, but it, it's important, especially in these value add deals, because it's, you know, it, it, if you just look quickly and you say, well, we're going to buy for 5 million and we're going to sell for seven. It's like, dang, that's, that's great. Um, and, and also, you know, our cash flow is going to be this. And, and the number you have in your mind is that 5 million. What then it's like, oh, but we're going to put a million into the property, you know, to make, you know, to make it worth, to get the rents up, to make it worth 7 million, we're going to put a million in, which again, that, that's fine. But well, now we're all in for 6 million. So the return is different, you know, a, a, a you know, $50,000 return on, on 5 million is different than a $50,000 return on 6 million. So you've got that, but then also to, you know, now we've got a million in profit we're looking at. Um, and then I like your point too, about the, the spread there, Paul, and, and the return. And what, you know, Paul was basically saying is like, if our, if, if, if on our all in costs, our return is 7%. So we're making 7% cash on cash return or like 7% on our all in costs. And someone else is really, he was saying a five cap. Basically that means somebody else is willing to, to pay a price that would give them only a 5% return. Well, they're going to, the property's worth a lot more to them. And that's, that's why you're going to make a lot of money on that property. So kind of confusing, uh, worth looking into more again, follow Paul on LinkedIn. He, he does a great job of, of explaining this more, but, um, so thank, thanks for all that, Paul. I, I want to transition a little bit. Um, I want to go all the way back when you were thinking about transitioning, Paul. So you're getting into real estate here a little bit. Um, you know, starting in 2016, you're kind of getting it going. Like you said, you, you know, you have a small portfolio build up, but it's not, um, you know, it's not going to support you and your family. Um, you're married, you've got kids, but you want to go full time. Take me back there, Paul. And like, what are the conversations like between you and your wife? How was she feeling about it? Uh, what, what were the, the thoughts and the conversations back then? Uh, 
my wife knew that I was very stressed out with my current situation. Um, she knew uh, how passionate I was about what I had going on in real estate, which wasn't much at the time. Yeah. Um, and because I had waited so long and, you know, I'm pretty risk averse as a person overall. Uh, it may not seem like it, but uh, when you, when you jump into an entrepreneurial adventure like that, but um, we had, you know, taken the steps ahead of time to have options. Essentially, we had saved quite a bit of money. Um, you know, we live below our means. We gave ourselves a, a good safety net if things didn't work out. And I basically gave myself a two year runway to, you know, make this work. And if it didn't, I thought I always had the opportunity to go back to what I was doing because I had left on good terms. Um, and I had a successful yeah. career with a good company. So, um, you know, for me, that was a little bit more comforting, but without the support of my wife, uh, it would not have happened. I can tell you that absolutely without uh, question. Um, you know, her being supportive of my dreams and being supportive of, you know, the lifestyle that I wanted to create for our family, uh, you know, meant everything to me. It really yeah. did. And it, it gave me the confidence to make the decision. It happened over time, but, um, you know, it wouldn't happen without that for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, you went about it the right way and you've been doing it, you know, for three years working at it. So it wasn't like a flash in the pan, an idea like, oh, I read a book and now I want to quit my job. You know, it, <laughs> um, you know, or her, hey, I heard a guy on a podcast and he did this, so I'm going to go do it. I mean, you know, obviously it was a lot more than that. So you build up, you know, some, some trust in that. And, and she saw, and, and then, yeah, too, just, she knows that you're risk averse. She knows that you're calculated. And, and so like, I, all right, but also just, I, I love that, that she, you know, she loves you and she wants to serve you and she wants, you know, the best for you. Um, where would, did she believe in the the dream? Like where was she at on the scale of like, you know, when you were like, Hey, here's what I think I want to do. And, and, and maybe you didn't have that big of a dream, but I mean, I'm guessing you were like, look, I, I think I can leave my job and, and I think I can go all in on real estate and this is what our life's going to look like. And we're going to have this much. And did she believe in that? Or, or was it just kind of like, ah, I, I know you want to get into real estate. So, so go for it, but we'll see. Where was she at as far as that goes? I don't know. You might have to ask her that. Okay. She probably would never tell me if she believed it or not. But um, yeah. I, I think she saw that um, I had worked hard. I had gotten a lot of things in order to be able to make that decision. And that if there were ever a time to take a chance on myself, it was now yeah. uh, at that time anyways. Yeah. Um, and she knew that, you know, we were going to be okay. So I, I think, uh, you know, even me, like I was saying earlier in our conversation, where I thought my business would be versus where it is today are very different, you know, coming yeah. from wanting yeah. to be a property manager and be focused just locally on Indianapolis, um, you know, and, and work with other investors on their properties today. That's very, very different from where, where my vision is or, or where I might be headed. So, yep. um, you know, things change over time, but you can try to create a roadmap five years out, 10 years oh, out, 15 yeah. years out. It's a good exercise to go through. And, yeah. you know, I think it's something that you should probably look at doing every, every year. Yep. Um, but in actuality, like as you kind of progress through your journey, different paths open up. You start to see the forest through the trees and sure. you start to have opportunities that you might not have seen before, or, you know, your course corrects a little bit and you get into things that maybe you didn't necessarily look at initially because you couldn't even, you didn't even know they were out there. So, yeah. um, I kind of just find joy in putting, you know, one foot in front of the other and seeing where the journey takes me. What, what's your, what's your life? What's your family's life been like, you know, how, how have things changed, uh, maybe for better or for worse? Uh, what, what's that transition been like for you and your family? It's been, it's been amazing. I mean, it's been everything that I would have hoped it would have been like, oh, I'm good. overnight, um, you know, traveling for conferences just a few nights a year and the rest of the time I'm home. Um, my wife has actually transitioned into a work from home role, uh, with her oh, career, cool. which she loves doing. So, 
you know, that's, that's made our lives just infinitely easier without commutes or overnight hotel trips or all the stuff that we had going on just a few years back. So now I'm able to go to all my kids games. Um, you know, we're able to, you know, take long trips on long weekends or, you know, take more vacations than we've ever vacationed before. Uh, next, next year, we're actually going to New Mexico and Utah for a month. So since we're both kind of location independent, we're just going to travel and try to give our kids more experiences that way. Um, been able to volunteer during the week, you know, at, uh, at my church to, to do some work with, with some guys there, um, you know, can, can kind of drop anything at any time and and be where I want to be. So to me, it's, you know, I never really liked the structure of a nine to five. You have to be somewhere at this time or between these times. Um, to me, I like to work when I'm inspired. Um, yeah. I'm kind of a creative yeah. from that standpoint. Sure. So if I can't sleep at four in the morning, I might pop out of bed and, and start writing something. Or, um, if I feel like working at night and I'm not feeling it, you know, in the afternoon, it's a nice day outside and I want to go play nine holes. Like that's, that's in the cards too. So it's really yeah. changed. That's awesome. and just giving me a lot more flexibility around, you know, uh, how I spend my time and kind of aligning, you know, my values a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Did you feel Paul at all? Like, um, as a man of faith were you, um, praying during that time. And, and since where did you feel it was something God was kind of calling you to, or did you have a sense of like, man, I feel like God created me for this instead of this. How, how was like kind of your, your, your faith walk through, through the transition and with real estate and things like that? That's a good question. And I, yes. Um, you know, I felt like there was, um, a force behind me that was kind of pushing me in a different direction. And I did ask for help with guidance in that. Yeah. Um, and you know, like I said, it took time for me to kind of realize some of the things that were, I thought were important to me that weren't. Yeah. Um, and then things that I kind of saw as out of reach that I eventually believed were fully, you know, capable of me achieving. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think faith helps in that for sure. And, you know, my relationship with God helped with that for sure. So, um, yeah. you know, it, it's a journey and, um, every test is, is just another step towards, you know, getting your goal reached. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing with real estate investing is I think people are enamored by the lifestyle it can create for you, but they quickly get discouraged because once you get in the trenches and you're battling with, you know, a rehab and you've got issues with contractors or, um, you know, you're dealing with some of the more difficult issues that may come up evictions and, and stuff like that. There's this, you know, defeated feeling potentially, but yep. every single lesson yeah. that you learn from those experiences progresses you towards eventually reaching your goal. And I would just say that the, the key message would be just to never give up. I mean, first of all, get started. That's, that's the number one thing is if you're on the sidelines, you have to get in the game because that's where your learning is going to really materialize. And you're going to be able to kind of take the next steps that you wouldn't otherwise from just reading books or whatever it might be. Right. Um, but then once you're in it, you know, pivot, never give up. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah, having that long-term view helps you to do that because you've got, yeah, it's about persistence for sure. Um, well, good stuff, Paul. Well, Hey, um, you know, if someone's looking at you and and thinking, man, you know, maybe I want to kind of do something similar. Um, I always like to ask as we wrap up here, um, what would you say is a key ingredient, maybe one key ingredient, uh, for someone that they're going to need to be a successful real estate investor? Great question. Um, I would say being open to networking, just being Mm -hmm. available, being, uh, you know, whether it's in, in person or over zoom or whatever it might be. Um, you may be surprised at what can come out of conversations, whether that's that person directly or somebody they introduce you to, or, you know, somebody that exposes you to a deal. Um, 
you know, I've gone to a few conferences and met some fantastic people and stay in touch with them. And there's been some deals that have come out of those relationships uh, yeah. just from one handshake. Yeah. Um, I realized kind of quickly that the good deals aren't necessarily on market and, you know, the off market stuff, uh, whether it's single family or multifamily, you know, it's who, you know, you know, it's who, who, you know, and where the relationships are. And, you know, what I've learned is that, you know, um, I'm not, I'm humbled, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right some of the time, but I'm wrong some of the time mm -hmm. too. And mm -hmm. kind of taking um, those lumps and kind of learning from other people who have been successful um, has made me into, you know, who I am right now. And I'm just looking forward to continuing down that path and yeah. seeing where I yeah. can go from here. How do you, or what do you think then is the key ingredient for, you know, while getting into real estate and having success in real estate, what's the key ingredient for maintaining your priorities for having success as a husband, as a dad, as a Christ follower? Um, creating boundaries, you know, can you compartmentalize things? Well, I think is, um, you know, what jumps out at me when you ask that question, um, yeah. you know, there's, there's always going to be more work to do. There's always going to be more yeah. deals. There's always going to be, um, things that are, you know, issues that you're dealing with that need to be addressed, but, uh, putting things front and center, I think are, are extremely important as to what's, you know, what are your values and what is most important to you? And I think yep. whenever I get stressed out and I get a headache, um, I, I've been trying to get better at practicing gratitude and just being thankful for where I've been and not getting yeah. too frustrated about where I'm not, you know, um, yeah. because I certainly want to grow. And there's certainly things that I haven't accomplished that I'm striving to accomplish right now. But just looking back and thinking about maybe my mindset and where I came from five years ago versus today. Right. Um, yeah. That's a big change and a big shift. And one that I would gladly take uh, five yeah. years ago, if you could show me the future. So it's about pushing forward. It's about not giving up, but it's also not about stressing out so much to the point where your, your only focus is your business or real estate. Yeah. It's about yeah. putting things in line because if you're not healthy, otherwise, whether that's your physical body or your, your yeah, mental state it, right. or your family relationships or your relationship with Christ, like all those things are going to negatively impact your ability to reach your professional goals. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. Yeah. Thanks for that, Paul. Uh, well, Hey man, that, I've taken up enough of your time. This has been, this has been great. Um, I like, I always love talking to you about this stuff, picking your brain. So thanks for sharing all this, all the information, all the experience that you have now, uh, what you've been through your story, uh, but then, you know, what you've learned and what you understand now about real estate investing as active and passive investor. Thank you for sharing that with my audience. Um, thanks for coming on, Paul. Uh, before I let you go, I always like to ask our, our guests, um, how might uh, my listeners and I be praying for you in the coming weeks? You can pray that uh, we, <laughs> we're we going on a long car trip with my kids. You can pray for uh -oh. me that that goes, that goes smoothly. Uh, we're going to yeah. go back, uh, see, see some family. So uh, they're always a little bit nutty in the car. And <laughs> that tests Drive through the night, man. That's what I... <laughs> Gosh, whenever we, we, we'll go down to Florida and I'm like, we're driving through the night. I want everybody to sleep except me. And that's the best way to drive. But no, we'll, yeah, we'll pray for that for you. That's it. Yeah, no. Idea. And I just want to say thanks Family so much for having me on the show. Lee. I've oh, been, yeah. I've been, uh, you know, a fan of yours for a while. It's been great getting to know you. Yeah, it's an you. honor to be on your show and, uh, yeah. look forward to staying in touch with you. Sounds good. Well, thanks Paul. Have a good one, bud. You too, man. Thank you for joining us for another great episode. I hope you'll take action on what you've learned today. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving Lee a five-star rating and review. And check him out on threefoldrei.com. Until next time, 1 Timothy 6.17.